Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Romans this morning. We want to look at uh, Romans 3, 21 through 25a, right? We're going to stop in the middle of the verse this time. I, I never like to do that, but I have to do it today. So uh, Romans 3, 21 through 25a, righteousness through faith is what I've titled the message. And let's uh, ask the Lord to bless the study. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Now minister to our hearts. Give me grace. Uh, to teach with clarity. Uh, May your word go forth uh, in power for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, note the theme, the righteousness of God, the gospel of God. And we have worked our way down to the section in 321 through 521. Uh, In systematically presenting the gospel of God, Paul begins by by methodically showing that the whole of mankind is under the condemnation of sin. Hey, how about starting there? Well, that's where Paul starts. And uh, it's not pretty. He does this in the long, dark section, extending all the way from Romans 1.18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And by way of review, let me just bring up our overhead slide there that summarizes, shows the whole world is guilty. Depraved pagans, hypocritical moralists, self-righteous religionists, and then his summary statement, the whole human race. And that brings us to the next section here in Romans, namely Romans 3.21 through chapter 5, which deals with the the overall theme, justification by grace through faith. Well, after the climactic 14-point indictment uh, showing that all are under sin, with the concluding emphasis being, by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin... We now come to the next section with the first paragraph being one long concentrated sentence as seen in our study this morning in 321 through 26. This paragraph, Romans 3, 21 through 26, has been called the heart of Romans. It's been called the most important single paragraph ever written. And to think, I'm able to teach it this morning at least most of it, and you're here this morning. Alva McLean said, if someone should ask me, Brother McLean, if you could have just six verses out of the Bible and all the rest taken away, which would you take? I would select these six verses. All of God's gospel is there and in a way found nowhere else in the Word of God. William Newell says, Let us most diligently read, ponder, yea, and commit to memory verses 21 through 26. For it is God's great statement of justification by faith. We should figuratively take off our shoes here because we are standing on sacred gospel ground. We pick it up, Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But now, introduces one of the greatest transitions in the history of the world. But now introduces a great contrast. Paul has just at great length shown that none live up to the righteous standard of God, as seen in the law. Absolutely no one. And it's ugly. We use the word depravity to define the natural condition of fallen mankind. 
And this is what Romans 1.18 through chapter 3, verse 20 is descriptive of. Total depravity. But now is a great hinge that turns the page. It reflects the ultimate turning point in redemptive history. This phrase, but now, is used by Paul 18 times. And it is used twice in Hebrews. It does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament. I'm not making any deductions there, but just saying. This has been called the most definite division in the whole Bible. And again, the most important pivotal transition in Romans. Because all of history and the fate of humanity hinges on what follows. A Roman poet by the name of Horace said, quote, Do not bring a God onto the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a God to solve it. Well, the sin problem of mankind is so great that only the one true God, the God of the Bible, can solve it. And that is precisely what he has done in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as spelled out by Paul here in Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God, we have at great length seen the unrighteousness of mankind as previously noted. But now, Paul brings forth a way to be right with God that was previously largely hidden. The righteousness of God here is not talking about the attributes of God, but rather how people can be right with God according to his terms. It's talking about a right standing before God and how one can have this right standing. Note that now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Is revealed is in the perfect tense, which denotes completed action with continuing results. This points to the righteousness of God now available based on the finished work of Christ, which Paul will go on to describe. In contrast, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith in 117, in Romans 117, is in the present tense, emphasizing that in the lives of people of faith, this reality of being right with God is an ongoing revelation in the lives of God's people. As Paul said there, the just shall live by faith. But the point here in Romans 3.21 is talking about a positional reality established by Christ in the historical event of the cross. While 117 is talking about the ongoing results of being right with God as demonstrated in the life of believers. And notice it is apart from the law. This is emphasized. In the Greek, apart from the law is in the emphatic position in the sentence. That means it's, in the, it's the first in the sentence. It's a strong statement emphasizing categorically a righteousness that is completely set apart from the law. You see, the law revealed the standard of God and the duty of man to keep it. And the law revealed we can't keep it. We all break God's holy law, as Paul has previously shown at great length. So there is no way we can be right with God on that basis. The law, keep the law, you'll be okay, you'll be right with God. We can't do it. So a whole new way 
that allows us to be right with God has now been revealed. This whole new way is shown to be through faith in Christ on the basis of what he has done for us as our Savior. That's the bottom line. The reality of faith is not a new concept. But the object of faith, as seen in Christ and his completed work on the cross, is now brought to light in a brighter way than ever seen before. This righteousness of God is now revealed. Revealed as fulfilled in the person of the historical Lord Jesus Christ. How can we be right with God? Well, through faith in Christ, as has now been revealed. 2 Timothy 1.10 But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What, what do we now see? Well, He has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Although the law could not provide a solution to mankind's sin problem, it did bear witness to God's ultimate plan and solution, which was fulfilled in Christ. The law and the prophets bear witness. They weren't the solution, but they bear witness to it. The law and the prophets is a way of referencing the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. You see, the gospel is not merely a New Testament theme. It was there in the Old Testament. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the gospel is according to the scriptures. That is the Old Testament scriptures. Now, it was somewhat hidden, but it was there in types and shadows, foreshadowing the reality of the coming Christ as seen in the whole of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. It was there in terms of prophecy, as seen, for example, in Genesis 3.15 and Isaiah 53. 1 Corinthians 5.7 says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, showing he is the fulfillment of the typology as seen in the Exodus. Passover introduced in the Exodus. The law required a blood sacrifice for sin. And the constant spilling of blood year after year was a witness of this reality. And at the same time, a witness to the fact that none of these offerings really took care of the sin problem. Because they constantly needed to be repeated. The law as a code was not the answer to our sin problem. But it did bear witness to the coming solution that would be provided in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament is an ongoing witness as seen in the present tense, being witnessed. New Testament truth being witnessed by the Law and the Prophets shows the inspiration and the unity of the Scriptures as they complementary or a whole telling the interwoven story of prophecy and fulfillment. The new way of being right with God is not really new at all, as it was concealed in the Old Testament in terms of rites, types, and prophecy, but it has now been revealed clearly in the New Testament as fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, some form of this is often stated. One integrated design, the New Testament is, the, is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. 
an interwoven whole. One story prophesied, fulfilled. The centerpiece being Jesus Christ. Notice he goes on to talk about this, uh, this righteousness of God. This now being able to be made right with God. What is the basis of it? Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. This verse emphasizes how a right standing with God, the righteousness of God, is appropriated and made your own, namely through faith in Jesus Christ. The way it becomes personal, personally possessed, is through faith. It has to be applied by faith. And then to drive the point home, Paul repeats it saying, to all and on all who believe. You know, when under inspiration something is repeated, it's making a strong emphasis. The righteousness of God is entered into by faith. Note the double emphasis here in Romans 3.22. You say, well, can we make it stronger? Yeah, Paul did. A triple emphasis in Galatians 2.16. How about this? Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, it's not enough to believe in God generally. Even the demons believe. The object of our faith must be Jesus Christ. This is the only way to be right with God. After the resurrection of Christ, God now commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe on his Son. The testimony of God is that he gives eternal life to all who believe in his Son. And whoever does not believe this is calling God a liar. 1 John 5, 9 through 11. Here's Paul's personal testimony. Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him not having mine own righteousness. I don't have any right, rightness to present to God. How can I be right with God? Not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. God's way of being right with him is not based on the keeping of the law, but rather by faith. It's not based simply on believing generic facts about God, but by believing in Jesus as the object of our faith. Faith is not a meritorious work, even though it involves the response of obedience. You know, Paul began the letter by saying that his calling as an apostle was for the obedience of faith among all nations. Romans 1.5 And we should note that while the obedience of faith is required, Paul is very clear in Romans 4.16 that, quote, It is a faith that it might be according to grace. Faith is not a meritorious work but rather is in harmony, perfect harmony, with grace. The one thing a person must do to be saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And the response was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible puts the onus to believe 
squarely on individual responsibility. Now, it's God who brings us to this point, but you do have to believe. John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Well, why? Well, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Condemnation is for unbelief. In the end, everyone is either an unbeliever or a believer. And this determines a person's eternal destiny. When it says at the end of verse 22, for there is no difference, the word for is really a bridge word. It ties back to what has just been said and also forward to what he is about to say. There is no difference how people are saved. That is by faith, verse 22. There is no difference in the need to be saved. All, as all equally have sinned to come short of the glory of God, verse 23. William MacDonald says, the availability, the availability of the gospel is as universal as the need. And the need is as universal and the need is universal because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the way, the only other place this language of no distinction is made in Romans is in Romans 10:12. Here in Romans 3:22, it's tied to all have sinned, as we will see. And in Romans 10:12, uh, it's tied to the same Lord, quote, the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. There's no distinction in need, and there's no distinction in provision. A major point for Paul is that all are in the same category. All are sinners, and all are saved the same way. That is, by faith alone, there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, I don't know if you can have a favorite verse on sin, but this would be mine. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You want to know what sin is? It's coming short of the glory of God. All have sinned in past tense, while fall short is in the present tense. We have, in fact, all sinned. And we all continuously fall short of the glory of God. We never measure up to the standard, ever. The standard presented here is the very glory of God. The glory of God is His holy nature. By the law is the knowledge of sin. By the glory of God we are measured. The glory of God is seen in the holy standard of the law. The moral standard of God's law presents the holiness of God, and we all come short. The glory of God is further seen in the person of Christ, and we all come short. You know, people have a tendency to want to measure themselves up against other people. You know what that is? That is a very low bar. The high bar, the unreachable bar, is God's glory. The standard is the divine standard. A preacher from years ago used to use a yardstick to illustrate coming short. He would say the length of the yardstick represented the glory of God. And then he would draw lines on the stick showing varying degrees of man's righteousness. Some might reach 75%. Others might reach 98%. But then he wrote on the other side of the stick, all come short. That really is a terrible illustration. It gives way too much credit to people and implies that some may need only 25% grace. 
Oh, there's only 2%. In truth, the Bible says, even all our righteousnesses, all of them, are as filthy rags before God. Another said, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory. But so are you. Perhaps they stand on the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp. But you are as little able to touch the stars as they. You know what? That's better. That's better. How about this? Just an illustration I'm using. And they all come short, even our illustrations, right? But let us pretend that America is earth and Europe is heaven. Now remember, we're pretending. Now the goal is for you to run and jump and see if you can make it to heaven in Europe. Now some might get a few feet further in their jump into the Atlantic Ocean, but all will come far short. Better yet, Isaiah 55, 9, God says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Left to ourselves, our attempts to be right with God are totally futile. We fall terribly short. None of us even come close to measuring up to God and His glory standard. I stole this from Middletown uh, Bible Church. You know, confession is good for the soul, but no, it's, that's where I got this. But it's, it's, it's good, isn't it? God is holy. Am I as holy as He is? God is righteous. Am I as righteous as he? God is loving. As, am I as loving as he? God is good. Am I as good? God is truthful. Am I as truthful? Now, don't lie. Uh, God is kind. Am I as kind? Question, do I measure up to the glory of, God, of glory of God or do I fall short? We all know the answer. We fall short in every category. Now, many think... The 22C, Romans 3, 22C, and verse 23 are parenthetical in nature. And very probably that is the case. So notice what we have here. Uh, if uh, this is the case, which uh, I think it is, this is probably parenthetical here, for there is no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the thought then, if you leave out the parenthetical thought here, uh, righteousness, by faith to all who believe. And then he says, being justified freely by his grace. So I want you to connect believe down to being justified. This is the basis, and here is the result. Being justified freely by his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Note there is a direct line of thought from all who believe to being justified. Who is justified? All who believe in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, jumping ahead just a little. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All who believe in Jesus are justified. The word justified and the word righteousness have the very same root word in the Greek and therefore have essentially the same meaning. In verses 21 through 26, the word righteousness is mentioned four times. In verses 24 through 30, some form of the word justify is also found four times. This is the dominant idea in this whole context. 
It's all about righteousness, how we are made right with God. The word justify literally means to declare righteous. It's a legal or a forensic word belonging to the courts. It's the pronouncement of a judge that declares a person right, innocent, or not guilty. And by the way, justified is the exact opposite of condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ, Romans 8.1. Justified is the declaration of the judge of the universe that we as believers are now in right standing with him. It's a right status conferred on us on the basis of faith. Whatever the charges, the judge of the universe has declared the person righteous. Romans 8, 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You can argue with God. Moody Bible commentary, by God's declaration, the sinner is put right with God and possesses the status of righteousness. To be declared righteous means there's nothing on us. God has pronounced us free from any and all guilt, from any fault. There's nothing on us. So saith the Lord God Almighty, the eternal judge of the universe. Justified and forgiven are related but have different nuances. Forgiveness is the idea of of letting the transgression go, while justification is a declaration that there are no standing charges. All charges have been dismissed. When God justifies a person, there is no more sin record. He pronounces you totally right, and he treats you ever after as if you had never sinned at all. You are cleared of all charges with no record of them. They will never be brought up again. They're gone. This is what Hebrews 10, 17 means when it says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That's justification. This is the pronouncement of the judge of the universe, declared righteous. Wow, that's incredibly good news beyond all all comprehension. A footnote, justification is a new status, while regeneration is a new nature. They're not the same, even though they happen simultaneously. Justification is purely the status that God declares over every believer, his pronouncement of righteous. Imagine God saying to you, you are righteous. I declare you perfect. In my sight. This is the status of every true believer. And then, of course, little by little, the inward reality of regeneration begins to work its way out in our lives. But that's a growth process. Life application, Bible commentary. God takes those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ, justifies them, and then calls them righteous before they've even begun to live for him. How about that? 
I mean, he justifies the ungodly. And say, I wait for you to get godly, and then I'll make the pronouncement. Oh, no. He justifies the ungodly who believe in Jesus. You talk about grace. Amazing grace. Justification is a once-for-all act. An act on God's part. It's not a process. It's all God's doing. No one can justify themselves. This is God's pronouncement. It's totally His doing. And there are no degrees of justification. Either a person is justified or they are not. All believers are equally justified. There is no difference. We all have the same right standing before God. As believers, we are justified freely. You know what that means? Without charge. With no strings attached. There are no prior conditions that need to be met because God justifies the ungodly the moment they believe in Jesus. Romans 4, 5. God can justify us freely on the basis of faith because he is operating totally on the basis of the redeeming work of Christ. Paul is all over himself here. I mean, he says, justified freely by grace. You know what that's like saying? That's like saying free grace, which is like being redundant. But Paul, wanting to make the point, wants to do so with emphasis. It's all grace. It's a pure gift. You cannot have merit and grace at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. Grace is 100% God's doing. Grace means God's unmerited favor. This is the basis on which we are justified. Simply by grace through faith. And isn't that what Paul says? You know the verse. The verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, which you do, lest anyone should boast. Grace is a major word in Paul's theology. He uses it 24 times in Romans, a total of 100, 100 times in his epistles. Alan Johnson says, When Paul wants to stress that salvation arises from God's initiative and not man's work, he uses the word grace. But God must have an objective basis to justify freely and deal graciously. You know, he cannot just overlook sin and say, since I'm a gracious God, just never mind about sin, it doesn't bother me. That, no, no, no. He can't just overlook sin. It has to be dealt with. And it was, as seen in the words, redemption and propitiation. Let's talk about those words. Uh, notice there, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a word from the marketplace. It's used 10 times in the New Testament. It means to deliver by paying a price. Slaves were often redeemed. That is, they were bought out of the slave market for a price. For example, if a man bought a slave and then freed him, the man paying the price to free him would be called a redeemer. 
And the slave set free was redeemed because a price had been paid to secure his freedom. Sin is costly. You know what the the price of sin is, right? What is the cost of sin? It's death. The wages of sin is death. It costs the price of death, and Jesus paid the ransom price to set us free. He has set us free from the penalty and the power of sin, and we now belong to him. He bought us with his blood, and he is now our master. He has set us free so we might belong to him. God justifies the believer freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's all based on the delivering payment of Jesus Christ at the cross. You know I love this saying, and I'm sure you do too. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. The thought continues, verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Whom here refers to Jesus. God set forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. The New American Standard translates uh, set forth as displayed publicly. ESV translates it as put forward. But I want to zero in on that word propitiation. It's another $50 word, right? It's a rich theological word. The basic meaning of propitiation is to appease or to satisfy God's wrath through sacrifice. It's the idea of God's wrath against sin was satisfied with the blood payment of Christ on the cross. The word propitiation comes from the religious world. I mean, it's an old word that was used in reference to people trying to appease the anger of their God. But as applied to the gospel, it is not us as people trying to appease God. Rather, God himself put forth Christ as a propitiation. That is as a satisfactory payment for sin. Note what it says, whom God set forth as a propitiation. This is the action of God. This is all God's doing. Jesus is God's lamb who takes away the sin of the world. You know, we could never appease God. We could never appease the wrath of God for the sin we have done. The wages of sin is death, and people who reject Christ as Lord and Savior will pay the death penalty of being separated from God forever and ever. But you know what? Even so, they will never satisfy the just demands of an all-holy God. Their payment will never appease him. It will never satisfy him. It will never be sufficient. They will be paying for it forever and ever and ever. This is awesomely terrifying. Just think of it. God cannot be appeased in any other way except by the death of his precious son. Which, by the way, piggybacking on what Vince said, is why this is so serious. Christ's death was so valuable in the eyes of God that it forever satisfies his holy wrath. 
toward all those who believe in him. And yet those rejecting Christ's payment will have to pay for their own sin forever and yet never satisfactorily pay off their sin debt. I mean, the wages of sin is death. And they will die an eternal death. Death means separation. And they will experience eternal separation from God for all eternity. In Revelation 14, he himself will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. Now the exact form of this word translated propitiation uh, here in Romans 3.25 is found only one other place in the New Testament. And that's in Hebrews 9.5 where it is translated as mercy seat. In the context of talking about the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies. Note there, Hebrews 9.5, Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Which I say, that is certainly true. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, repeatedly used this very word, translated here in Romans 3.25 as propitiation, it used that very word to speak of the mercy seat, which was the golden lid or covering on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So here's what we're talking about, the mercy seat. It's the lid up here. There's the mercy seat. Inside was the law. Several things were in there, but the law was in there. These represented, they were symbolic of, of the holy presence of God. So you've got the holy presence of God, you've got the mercy seat, and you've got the law. Inside the ark was the law, by which is the knowledge of sin. Over the ark were the cherubim, which stood as symbols of God's holy presence. In between the two was the mercy seat, where the sacrificial blood was applied by the high priest on the annual day of atonement. As the high priest applied the blood, God's wrath was once again averted because a substitute had been slain on behalf of a sinful people and presented at the mercy seat. But this was merely a temporary picture of a coming permanent reality that would be put forward in the person of Christ. Jesus, in effect, is portrayed as our mercy seat who with his shed blood stands between us as guilty sinners and the holiness of God. His blood applied appeases the wrath of God so that we might be reconciled to God. The wrath of God abides on unbelievers, as seen in John 3.36. All the way through this whole condemnation section that we previously looked at in Romans 1.18 through 3.20, the great issue is consistently the wrath of God. That's the concern. Note how it's brought out, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. 2.5, storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. 3.5, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? 
the holy wrath of God had to be appeased. And it was in the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The mercy seat was where God met his people. Notice what it says, Exodus 25. There I will meet you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment, uh, commandment to the children of Israel. God would meet with his people at the mercy seat on the basis of shed blood. Note the emphasis here in Romans 3.25, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a satisfactory sacrifice by his blood. It was at the cross that Jesus satisfied the just demands of God's holy anger against sin. We read in Romans 5.9, jumping forward again, much more than having now been justified by what? His blood. Justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Justified by faith, justified by blood. They go together. There are a number of other places in the New Testament that use a form of this word propitiation. Uh, For example, in Hebrews uh, 2.17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation a satisfactory sacrifice for the sins of the people. 1 John 2, 2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And 4.10, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. But then note that this propitiation, this satisfactory sacrifice, has to be personally appropriated by faith. Appropriation by faith is a major point in the whole context here of Romans 3. God set forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood who is appropriated by faith. On the divine side, God has made provision for us in the sacrifice of Christ. On the human side, we must respond with the obedience of faith. This is how we appropriate the truth of the bloody propitiation that is Christ. This is what we mean by believing in Jesus as our personal Savior. Here's the bottom line. Propitiation is the appeasement of the wrath of God through the blood of Christ who is appropriated by faith. Verse 22 indelibly makes the double emphasis that the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. He alone is Savior. To believe in Him as Savior is to believe in Him alone as Savior. We believe in Him as our Redeemer, who delivered us by paying the price, the precious price of His his blood, His precious blood. We believe in Him as our propitiation, who satisfied the wrath of God through His shed blood. This is what we mean when we say we believe in Jesus as our Savior. Now, there are three special theological words here in verse 24 and 25. They are the words justification, redemption, and propitiation. Uh, I want you to to look at them closely here, just by summary. Uh, Justification is a legal word, means to be declared righteous. Redemption is a marketplace word, to free by paying a price. And propitiation is a religious word, meaning to appease or satisfy God's wrath. 
Note the key words in this context related to having a right standing before God are conditioned all the way through on the emphasis of faith or believing. This is how you make it yours. Righteousness, right with God, justified, declared righteous, grace, unmerited favor, redemption, delivered with a price, propitiation, wrath, satisfied, through faith. On all who believe, through faith. The blood of the Passover lamb, back in the Old Testament, had to be applied to the door. It wasn't enough just to be shed. It had to be applied. In terms of application, this is true of the blood of Jesus. Yes, he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, but it must be personally applied in order for a person to be saved. This is similar to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10, where he says that God is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Provision has been made for all, but it must be applied. And the way it is applied is by faith. We must believe in Christ as our personal Savior. As Savior, He died for all of our sins. As Lord over all, He arose again the third day. And in saving faith, the full gospel, we believe in Him as our Savior who died for our sins and as our Lord who rose again. Alva McLean summarizes what I've been saying here. Propitiation cannot be without blood. Yet propitiation is not operative without faith. Propitiation may be made, but it avails me nothing until I believe. And so the two elements must be present to have propitiation and have it operative. First, the propitiation, Jesus Christ. He must be slain, his blood be shed. Then there must be faith in him. Let me wrap up. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a famous preacher who died in 1960. He had superinscribed a heart over Romans 3.21 through 26 in his Bible. And the reason, as he said, was, quote, I am convinced today, after these many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important in the Bible. Have you seen their importance? You know, there's an old song. Janie always asks me, what songs do you have? I say, I don't know. I'm in the middle of this sermon. I'll tell you when I'm done. By the time I get done, the bulletin's printed. (laughs) But uh, there's an old song that says, Nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The truth of nothing but the blood of Jesus is so strong that I've asked for it to be sung at my funeral. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, is all about. On April 15, 1912, the Titanic left, for a, left on its maiden, virgin, uh, maiden voyage Uh, from the White Star Dock in Southampton, England, on its destination to New York. En route, it sank in the North Atlantic. At that time, it was the largest, the most luxurious, and the most technologically advanced ship in the world. 
I mean, people were so proud. Of it. People proud. You're always proud, proud, proud. Look at us. Oh, great, great, great. We're great. Everybody's, we're, we're the greatest. You're not. We're, we are. You know, that's what people are all about. They're all about themselves and their ego. And they were so full of themselves. People were saying, even God couldn't sink this ship. I think God was listening in on that. Yet when it hit an iceberg a few short hours later, it went to the bottom of the ocean. Some were rescued. Most were not. In Liverpool, England, a large crowd of relatives and friends gathered at a seaside office. On one side of the office was posted, known to be saved. On the other side, it said, known to be lost. Every now and then, a man would emerge from the office with a name to post on one side or the other. As as he did so, the crowd watched with hushed stillness to see on which side he would put the name. You see, there were only two categories, the saved and the lost. And so it is, my friends, and so it will be for all eternity. You will be in one category or another, all depending on what you do with Jesus. In the end, there are the saved and the lost. There are believers and there are unbelievers. Praise to the Lord for the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Have you believed? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.